This week we're going to see the Lordship of Jesus, and those two are closely connected. So let's read our text together. We're in Mark chapter 12, we'll be starting in verse 35 and reading down through verse 40. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God, the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful. It can crush rocks. And it can crush human hearts. Your Son is our Savior, who you have sent for us to redeem us. And your Spirit gives life. We bless you, Lord. We pray that you would help us as we look into your word. Be our teacher. Be our guide. Be our satisfaction in a weary land, Lord. If you don't satisfy us with yourself, what can we possibly find satisfaction in? So help us this morning, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we bring these two parts together. I think the main thing we'll see is the call to accept and glorify David's Son and Lord with a true heart. Accept and glorify David's Son and Lord with a true heart. So we'll see first the call to accept David's Son and Lord, and then the call to glorify the Lord in truth. At this point in Mark chapter 12, uh, Jesus has just responded to three questions. The Herodians and the Pharisees came, and they had a question about taxes, and they were ready to trip Jesus up. But he responded wisely, and the trap was foiled. Then the Sadducees came, and they had a real stumper of a question on the resurrection. They probably had stumped the Pharisees on it, and they were ready to test Jesus out. And yet he proved from the books of Moses the resurrection of the dead. God is the God of the living. And then last week we saw a scribe come and he asked Jesus about the law. What is the most important commandment? Jesus has now answered all these three questions, which are quite difficult questions. And uh, now the one who was questioned becomes the questioner. Uh, he The the people who are opposed to Jesus have exhausted their hard questions. And now Jesus has a question for them that they will not be able to answer. We just read it, but I'll read it again. He says, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? seems that the, the punchline of this question, the difficult part of it, boils down to this. If the Christ is David's son, how is it that David can call him Lord? 
Do you see the, the not in that question? Fathers in antiquity were considered greater than their sons. Uh, the river of honor flowed upstream to fathers. Sons honored fathers. So uh, the idea that a father would call his son Lord uh, is perplexing. But nonetheless, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls the Christ Lord. This question is a a tough nut to crack. Uh, The answer to this difficult question, however, is pretty simple. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to this difficult question. And if they are not willing to accept the identity of Jesus, they'll never be able to answer this question. If the scribes here cannot see who Jesus is, in his life, in his ministry, in his words, if they look at Jesus and they can't answer this question, it's because they haven't accepted Jesus. How do we understand the answer to this question? I want to go a little more into detail on that. First, we see that Jesus is David's son. If you remember all the way back to the end of November, as Jesus is leaving Jericho, getting ready, right before the triumphal entry, he encounters a blind man outside of Jericho, blind Bartimaeus, uh, and he cries out to our Lord and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is Mark 10, 47. The man who was blind saw exactly who Jesus was. Mark, in his gospel, he's been going along, he's been putting before us the identity of Jesus all along. And as the son of David, he is the Christ. He is, and that means the Christ, just meaning he's the anointed one. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was anointed at his baptism. Over and over again, we see Jesus fulfilling the role of the Christ throughout Mark's gospel. He fulfills the role of prophet and priest and king. All of those roles were anointed in the Old Testament. We see him doing that over and over again. Uh, The other gospels, like Matthew and Luke, they give us the lineage of Jesus through a descendant, through David. Uh, They focus on his lineage, showing how he has connection to the line of David. Mark doesn't include a a birth narrative or the lineage of Jesus. He just simply shows that Jesus is the Christ in his ministry. Uh, Ironically, uh, the opposition that the religious leaders will bring against Jesus are going to fulfill that very role. He will be the stone that the builders have rejected, and he will be made the cornerstone. Uh, He will be put to death as our high priest and fulfill that aspect of his role as the Christ. So Mark has been showing us throughout his gospel that Jesus is the Christ. Of course, we have the declaration from Peter uh, that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus accepts that. So Jesus is the son of David as the Christ. Well, how is David's son, David's Lord, then? Jesus is David's Lord because he's not only the son of David, he's also the son of God. So this verse in our passage here that Jesus quotes, uh, it came up in Josh's reading as well, in Hebrews 1. I believe it's the most quoted verse in the New Testament. 
And we can flip back to that if you would. Go back to Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, I'll read it from here. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools, your footstool. Um, Likely in your Bibles, if you're looking at Psalm 110, you'll see that there's the word Lord is used twice. Uh, The Lord says to my Lord, Probably in your Bible, the first one is all caps. If you look, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. And then the second occurrence of Lord is capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And that is not a mistype in your Bible. It's not a misprint. What's happening there is the translators of the Bible from Hebrew into English, they're signaling a difference in the word behind the word Lord there. So capital L-O-R-D is the covenant name that God revealed to his people at the burning bush. Remember when Moses says, well, who, who, who will I say has sent me to speak to you? When he talks to God about going to the Hebrew people. He says, I am has sent you. That, he declares his name as I am and that speaks to his self-existence and his independence. God is not dependent on anybody to exist. He always has and he always will. And that's the, the name he revealed there, the name Yahweh. Uh, the next occurrence of Lord in this passage, lowercase o-r-d on Lord, that is the Hebrew word Adonai. And Adonai is often used of God throughout the Old Testament as Lord. Sometimes it's used of people of greatness, um, somebody who's over another person. Both of these words occur right here in this verse. Uh, let's, um, let's put this together now. In Psalm 110, Yahweh the Lord speaks to Adonai the Lord. David calls Adonai, who is distinct from Yahweh, my Lord. Now, if your head is spinning... Uh, you can hold on to your nose and wait till the room stops moving. Maybe you're tracking just fine. I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence. Uh, but there's a lot going on here. Okay, let's take the next step. If Jesus is the son of David and therefore the Christ, then Jesus is the Lord to whom the Lord is speaking. How can that be? It pulls us back to the first verse of Mark's gospel. Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. The way that Jesus can be the Lord, distinct, and that's Adonai, distinct from the Lord, Yahweh, is that he is God's Son. Jesus is truly God, yet distinct from the Father. He is no less God than the Father. The Father is not the Son, and yet we don't have two different gods. We can turn back to Mark 12. Even just last week, we saw that the Lord is one. We can't forget the Holy Spirit here. In fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Uh, He's the one who inspired David to write this prophetically. So just in 
Mark 12, 36, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all referred to, and just seven verses earlier, you have the declaration that God is one. So that's how David's son can be David's Lord, because he's also the Son of God. In Jesus, we have the perfect mediator. You know how mediation works? You've got two parties that are at odds together. There's some estrangement or difficulty or antagonism, and a mediator comes in and brings resolution. Jesus is the perfect and fully adequate mediator. He, as God, came to us and took on human flesh. So he can represent us to God as fully man, and he himself comes as God to us. He is the only one who is able to mediate for us to God. Now, that's not exactly a simple answer to Jesus' question, as we've been looking at it, uh, but within that answer is the heart of the New Testament and God's revelation of himself in Jesus. Now, if you miss that, you miss everything. This is core to what God has revealed about himself in his word. And it is these very truths that the religious leaders will reject. It is these very truths about the identity of Jesus that will enrage them and call for Jesus' death. At his trial, and Mark 15, we'll get there someday, some year, uh, Jesus' self-testimony that he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, and that he is the Son of Man, that's the testimony by which the high priest in rage is going to tear his garments and he's going to call for Jesus' death. This is what divides all of humanity today. Who is Jesus Christ? And who is Jesus Christ to you? Do you accept him for everything that the Bible says about him? Or will you only accept the type of Jesus who agrees with your desires? Or a type of Jesus who meets your intellectual demands? David called Jesus his Lord. And do you call him your Lord? If he is not your Lord yet, accept him as your Lord today. Turn from sin, turn from doing life your way, and submit to this gracious Lord. Believe on him for salvation, and you will be saved. That is the promise that the Bible gives us. And if you, along with David, do call Jesus your Lord, then keep following him today. Jesus, our Lord, calls us to submit every Thing in our lives to him. Joe had a, a great word for us last week as he invited us to surrender everything to Jesus. We, he used the illustration of the monkey, if you'll remember. We don't want to be like that monkey whose hand is trapped, holding on to something that it won't let go of, even at expense of its life. Is there anything in your life that you need to release to God? Do it. There may be sin in your life that you know you need to forsake. If so, forsake it. Don't make room in your life for the sins that he died to forgive. Or it may be a demand on God's timing for an answer in prayer. Give that over to him. The Lord is wise and holy. He knows what he is doing in our lives, even when it's incredibly hard. 
Perhaps there's a relationship in your life that you wish looked different than it looks right now. I invite you to give that over to him and seek to reflect him in the way that you approach that relationship. Relationships in this world are almost never free of mess. But that doesn't mean that we're free from the obligation to love those God has put in our lives. Love sometimes rebukes. Love forgives at every opportunity. Love endures a lot of mess. And love does good for those who we don't think deserve it. If Jesus is your Lord, love people the way Jesus, your Lord, loves them, including you. Perhaps on the other hand, something that you're struggling to surrender to the Lord, maybe you have anxieties over finances. Look to the Lord who cares for you. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Boy, we have enough troubles today, don't we? If Jesus is your Lord, then put every aspect of your life under his lordship. Perhaps you've heard the, the term conditional and unconditional surrender. Have you ever heard those phrases? When an army or a state surrenders in war conditionally, the victorious state or army agrees to some conditions from the surrendering party. Uh, there might be an agreement like, if you give up now, we'll let you keep some territory, or some munitions, other things. Uh, an unconditional surrender, however, is a surrender in which the victors give no concessions. Uh, those who lose, lose hard. They don't get to make any demands on the victors. Uh, they don't have any bargaining chips for leveraging concessions. Now, in our walk with the Lord, we can slide into thinking that we've offered God a conditional surrender. Uh, you know, we might say things, yes, Lord, I'll give you this and that in my life, but don't touch this part of my life. You can do this, but don't do that. Sometimes we set terms for God, uh, but that's not how it works. When we came to God in repentance and faith, we came with an unconditional surrender. We laid it all at Jesus' feet, or at least we should have. If we are honest with ourselves, we can admit that our hearts don't always live there, uh, but that's where we want to be. 
And this passage reminds us that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Uh, before we go on and consider the next part and see the scribes, I, I don't want to move without pointing something out from verse 36. Uh, notice that Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. And he goes on to quote, uh, David says this, but he says it in the Holy Spirit. This is a dynamic that we find elsewhere in the Bible when the Bible is helping us to understand itself. Uh, yes, David wrote down the words of his heart. He wrote down what he was thinking, what he wanted here. Uh, but they are also fully the words of the Holy Spirit. So it was written by David, yet it's God's word. The Holy Spirit inspires David in his writing such that every word he wrote was God's word. Now there is some mystery in that, certainly. How exactly does the Holy Spirit do that? There's some level of mystery, we don't know, but he does. And that reality gives us certainty that the Bible is truly from God. So if somebody says, well, I'm not going to believe the Bible, that's just a bunch of writings from men. So no, the Bible itself attests that it is God's word. It gives us confidence that there is no true contradiction in the Bible. If men were writing over the span of about 1,500 years, and they were just writing down whatever they want, I'm sure there'd be all sorts of contradictions. But we have the Holy Spirit who has superintended the writing of his word and ensured that every word is true and pure and faultless. Let's go ahead and move on now. Uh, let's consider Jesus' call here to glorify the Lord in truth. Uh, we've seen now the scribes a few times. Um, who are these people that Jesus calls the scribes here? Uh, we saw one last week. He asked Jesus a question about the law, which one is most important. Um, this scribe received a commendation from the lips of Jesus. But not the scribes as a whole in this passage or elsewhere. Um, we don't know much about the scribes. Uh, we don't know as much about them as we know about the Pharisees or the Herodians or the Sadducees. Um, but we do know that they were experts in the law of Moses. Um, there's probably some distinction between the scribes and the lawyers. We see a lawyer in um, Luke chapter 10. He comes and asks Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We see a lawyer there. We see scribes here. What's the difference? I don't exactly know. It seems to be a lot of overlap. Both are experts in the law of Moses. And it seems like the, the scribes rolled with the Pharisees quite often. In Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus talks about the scribes and the Pharisees together ten times. He references them together. And there is certainly one thing that they shared in common with the Pharisees. So we see it here. That's hypocrisy. I'll read these verses again. Verse 38. In his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Now, here is a people who loved being honored as holy and righteous people. They had a craving for honor. You could say that their craving for honor is what got them out of bed in the morning. They had an insatiable hunger for the praise of man. And Jesus here says that they liked wearing long robes in public. The Greek word for the long robe here is the stole. 
And we see that throughout the New Testament. It's always uh, a high-class kind of garment. It's a long, flowing robe. This is the kind of robe that's given to the martyrs in the book of Revelation, given a long white robe. Uh, The scribes liked their threads fine, real fine. Uh, Human beings tend to assume that expensive clothes are worn by important people. Uh, I don't think this is primarily condemning looking nice. It's not bad to dress nicely. Uh, Their problem was that they were grasping for glory and they dressed for the part. The next thing we see here is that they liked greetings in the marketplace. Uh, the marketplace in these days is called the Agora. Uh, it's not, it wasn't like going to Aldi's today. You know, you go to Aldi's, you walk around, and you get the groceries you need, and you get out of there. Uh, it wasn't like that back then. Uh, in fact, the supermarket's a pretty recent invention. The marketplace in antiquity was for much more than buying milk and coffee. It was a place where people gathered. It was in, around the central part of the city, and people got together there, often for important <laughs> civic matters. Things would be decided there in the marketplace. Uh, now, there was more that was shared there. Brace yourself. Uh, since they didn't have the Internet back then, they couldn't go on their phone to check the news. And they also didn't have phones even for that matter. Uh, If you wanted to know what's going on, if you want the news of what's happening in a far-off battle, or you want to know what direction the city's going, you would go to the Agora. You go to the marketplace. That's where you heard official news. That's where that was declared. That's where you'd also hear unofficial news, also known as gossip. Uh, it's, It's the place where interesting stuff happened. People like to hang out at the marketplace. And the scribes, like to get dressed up for that occasion. They like to go out to these public places, and they liked to be recognized for who they were. You know, it's no fun to act important if nobody plays along. They would have loved things like coming in and somebody saying, Welcome, Dr. Judah. It's so nice to have you with us today. Thank you for gracing us with your magnanimous presence. You know, they're just eating that up. You know, that's the scratch that they need itched. Uh, and it's not just that. When they go to church, they go big. Jesus says here that they make sure that they get the best seats in the house in the synagogues. That's what they've got to have. They've got to have the most prominent areas. If you'll notice, our front pews are empty. Something has changed over the last 2,000 years where uh, being up front isn't, isn't necessarily desirable. Uh, but it's, it's not just that. They also like the best seat at feasts. Uh, big celebrations are another good opportunity for people to know just how amazing you are if you're a scribe. Jesus puts all of these self-important ideas and traits for the scribes, he puts all of that before us. He shows us all of the ways that the scribes make much of themselves. They see themselves as such important people socially and religiously. They're starving for the praise of man. They are starving for glory. And Jesus says that's not the only thing they're starving for. He says next, who devour widows' houses. No, they don't eat stone and mortar and wood. Uh, They don't eat houses in that way. They eat up the livelihood of widows. Uh, Rather than extend help and mercy to helpless widows, 
they mercilessly take what they can from them. And then with those hands covered in blood, they go to the public prayer meetings and they lift their hands to make lofty prayers, elaborate and long prayers, so that people can see just how holy they are when their hearts are dead. Uh, People who are so in love with their own glory and their own honor and respect, they never loved a living soul outside of themselves. They certainly didn't love God. Their hearts were dead. Jesus says something very similar of the Pharisees elsewhere. They go and they pray publicly with crooked motives. And Jesus says that they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, does that mean that hell is going to be worse for them in some way? Possibly. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's a terrifying statement. I think we can take that much from it. And I bet that Jesus, what he said here, must have shocked a lot of people. The scribes were such good men and people of such good reputation, and they were apparently honored in society. For Jesus to say this of the scribes, I have to imagine it shocked a lot of people. I really wonder how the scribe from our passage last week responded to this. Uh, He just received something of a commendation from Jesus, and then this withering rebuke comes to the scribes as a class. I hope he repented. I hope he looked to Jesus. But what I want to point out here is that this isn't recorded in here by Mark so that we can say, wow, man, those scribes were really bad dudes. I am so glad I am not like one of those sinners. Jesus is calling his disciples to beware the scribes. I don't think he's calling them to be afraid of the scribes and hide from them when they get close to them. Jesus is calling them and us to be cautious not to become like them. Every heart craves approval. And we must find our approval ultimately in God as his beloved children through Jesus Christ Or we will go everywhere searching far and wide to get that praise from other people. If we don't find our validation in God, we will demand that validation from every single person in our lives and from society as a whole. We will become glory monsters, always craving glory from other people. Now, it is not inherently bad to honor somebody. It's not bad to be honored for good reasons. Uh, That's not what Jesus is condemning here. It is bad to seek honor for yourself at the expense of God's glory and at the peril of others. On the outside, it looked like the scribes were living every moment of their lives for God's glory. But actually, inside, where people couldn't see, they were driven by a passion for their own glory. And it's a a sad reality that people who understood so much could be so far from God. I mean, think about it. Jesus starts this out by noting that the scribes know and that they they teach that the Christ will be the son of David. That's quite a bit of perception. To read the Old Testament and to know from the Old Testament that there is a coming Christ, that he will come, and that he's a son of David, that's quite a bit of perception. They understood quite a bit of the Bible. But when he was standing there in front of them, they completely missed it. And why is that? This isn't just some tragic accident. Their hearts 
were not alive to the God of the universe. And so when he came to them face to face, they had no idea who they were dealing with. We want to be people of this book. We want to be people who hunger to know the word. And when we go to the word, we want to know the God who has revealed himself. We come to this book to know God. We, we come to this book to put our hearts and our lives out before him so that he can examine us, so that he can search our heart with a spotlight, so that if there is any crooked way in us, that would be exposed and we would turn from that. Every single one of us has things that we don't even see in our lives. People often use the illustration, it's like the, the person who goes out to lunch and he's eating and he gets something on his face and he has no idea He's got a glob of mustard in his mustache. He doesn't, he doesn't see it, but it's everybody else that sees it. Uh, maybe not everybody else sees our flaws, but God does. He, he sees the areas where our lives are not in conformity to Christ. And he is so patient and so gentle. We should press into his word so that he would reveal himself to us, that we would know who he is. And so that he would continue to reveal ourselves to us in our less than flattering parts uh, and grow to look more like his son, Jesus Christ. Well, here in our passage, we see the truth that Jesus is the Lord and the call for us to bring our lives under him in that and to live to him truly. I want to transition now to a time of communion. The way we practice communion at Berean we have what's called an open communion. And what that means is if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, we invite you to take 